Hello, and welcome to NER Out Loud. I'm Madison Middleton. Today, we focus on Cuban writers, with readings of two short prose pieces from NER's Cuban Literature Supplement, published in Volume 42, Number 1, along with a conversation with their translator, Jennifer Shu. Let's begin with Portrait of My Mother-in-Law with Subsequent Touch-Ups by Ana Lydia Vegasorova, read by Lou Mila. Lou is a sophomore at Middlebury College, where she studies theater. She calls Miami, Florida home. Ana Lydia Vegasorova was born in Leningrad, in the former Soviet Union. She settled in Havana, Cuba in 1989. She's a versatile writer, having published more than a dozen books in multiple genres, including novels, short story collections, poetry collections, and children's books. Her work has won many prizes and awards, both in Cuba and abroad. She currently lives in Havana, Cuba. Portrait of My Mother-in-Law with Subsequent Touch-Ups by Ana Lidia Verga Serova. One. My mother-in-law is washing up and in a bad mood because she's washing up. She passes by the open door to my room and sighs deeply, somewhat theatrically, until she can't take it anymore and lets out a, look at that sink. She's always like this, and she never says, someone really needs to do this or that, or you really need to do this or that. She prefers an indirect way of communicating her desires, the mode of suggestion. She finds it more poetic. She's a lover of the lyrical, my mother-in-law. I make like I'm deaf, an idiot, clueless. I keep writing the story because it's her son's turn to do the dishes. I cooked and have no interest at all in getting my hands wet. So then she decides to use modern torture. She puts on Radio Relo, which is just the nicest station. Round the clock, they tell you things in an even, level voice. And over it, the doom, doom, doom of the metronome, like drops of water on your skull until you go crazy. I don't know whose idea it was. Must have been someone with a hideous mind like that of my mother-in-law, who puts it on all the way up so I go crazy faster. But luckily, there are batteries in my Walkman. I hook it up, having already loaded it with Lorena McKennett's latest cassette, and keep on writing. I keep going with the protagonist, who's a woman writing a story about a woman writing a story about... You know what I mean. Nothing out of this world or anything. Two. I write, I smoke, I write and smoke, I write and write, I smoke and smoke. I toss the ashes out the window. I toss the unusable pages out the window. I toss cigarette butts out the window. My mother-in-law is washing up and in a bad mood, I write. But no one's imagining her, just me, as I watch her pace to and fro with foam up to her elbows, flooding the tiles with foam. Then she'll tell me I'm filthy, just look how I've got the floor. I can sharpen her image. She has blue eyes. Striking, no? She wears cheap t-shirts bought on Markdown. She has a million cheap t-shirts bought on Markdown. She spends long stretches painting her nails in front of the TV, night after night. For that, she uses cheap polish bought on Markdown that drips away day after day. But she's persistent. A persistent old lady. Like the metronome's drops of water. Doom, doom, doom. Until you go crazy. Even though I make like I'm persistent too, and I write. I write, write, write. You know what I mean? Nothing out of this world. The woman, the story, the woman in the story, the other one, and so on, endlessly. Three. She passes by the door to my room and sighs deeply, somewhat theatrically. 
Finally, she can't take it anymore and lets her in. I am so tired. Loud, louder than Radio Hello, louder than Lorena. So I'll hear her. But I make like I'm deaf, an idiot, clueless, and I write. When Adriana would have gone up a long time ago to do the dishes, when Marina Tsvativa would have gone up a long, long time ago to do the dishes, I don't, for two key reasons. A, I cooked, therefore let my fellow man do the dishes. B, I can't stand getting my hands wet. When my hands get wet, they look like strings of sausage. Once they dry, it's even worse, and I have to douse them in creams, moisturizing creams spot on markdown, nourishing creams that smell rancid, that smell like misery and chaos. I prefer to let them stay dry and bathe with a scrubbing brush, limiting myself to the essential, in addition to writing endless stories and more stories about women, their stories, the women in the stories by the women in the stories by the... Four. Raskolnikov was a brute from another time, from out of this world. He was not acquainted with the sophisticated techniques of modern torture. I don't think he even had a Walkman. He was a primitive type, ordinary. My mother-in-law is washing up, arms drenched in foam to her elbows, and she feels like her head is going to explode from all the doom, 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 which doesn't appear to have had the slightest effect on me. She looks powerless before my indifference, my indolence, my arrogance, and I'm silent, refusing to wet my hands, which are sweaty, covered in scabs and eczema, with chewed up nails, with chewed up skin, with fingertips chewed to the bone, with chewed up bone. I think she'll end up having a stroke. The first BAM will land her in the hospital. I promise her in writing to bring her flowers and candy. Okay, candy maybe not, but maybe. It depends, because if I finished the story at some point and got paid, I'd have the money. My mother-in-law walks by the door to my room, but I make like I don't realize and keep going with my story. So then she sticks her face in mine, right above the notebook where I'm writing the story about the woman who's writing the story about the woman, My mother-in-law looks at me with her blue eyes, preventing me from moving on, finishing it. Trying to sell it so I can buy her candy, I promised. It's her last resort. The aggravating last resort. Five. I could get worked up, take my chewed up, sweaty, covered in scabs and eczema fingers out of my mouth, fling my cigarette butt out the window, get up and stick my mother-in-law in the washing machine that rotates all her cheap t-shirts bought on Markdown, toss in the dirty plates from the sink and shove it all with a scrubbing brush I use to bathe. Then, I could throw the washed clothes out the window, the washed mother-in-law, the washed plates, and toss the water from the washing clothes, my mother-in-law, plates down the drain with all the foam and the blue eyes down the drain, so I'd stop getting everything dirty, the floor, the story, my line of sight. But I don't get worked up. I rescue the notebook, pivot to the other side, and keep writing, writing, writing. Six. My mother-in-law is a poor woman who is washing up and falling into a bad mood because she's washing up, and she falls back on Radio Hello because she's falling into a bad mood. And she's looking for compassion by the door to my room where I, steadfast, am writing. The foam drips drop by drop onto the tiles of the floor and onto her cheap clothes bought on Markdown, her blue eyes looking at me from far away from her world of mother-in-law washing up. And I smile at her from my world of woman writing a story about a woman writing a story. And I hear past Lorena's voice that the doom, doom, doom has ceased. I get up worried thinking she's finally had a stroke. I leave my room worried, thinking about the flowers and candy I promised her in writing, and I find her doing the dishes with her unpainted fingernails because the cheap polish bottle markdown chips away day after day. I find her there with foam up to her elbows and I think, worried, about my story and that woman, her story, 
The woman in her story who gets up worried and sees her mother-in-law doing the dishes worried, sees the cheap polish bottle marked down disappear down the drain, sees the foam disappear down the drain, goes back to her room and flings the unusable pages out the window and they fly away, endless. You know what I mean. Nothing out of this world or anything. That was Portrait of My Mother-in-Law, with subsequent touch-ups by Anna Lydia Vegasorova and read by Lou Mila. Later, we'll hear a reading of selections from Vulture Effect by Jorge Enrique Laje, also translated by Jennifer Shu. But before we get to that, here's my interview with Jennifer, who I had the great pleasure of meeting through Zoom. I'm Jennifer Shu. I'm a translator from Spanish, focusing mostly on contemporary Cuban and quote-unquote Asian-Peruvian writers. I'm also assistant editor at New Vessel Press here in New York, the um, translated literature press of, that does publishes translated literature, mostly uh, fiction and narrative nonfiction. Yeah, I, I got my MFA in literary translation from the University of Iowa and my bachelor's in comparative literature from Princeton. I'm based in New York, uh, where I grew up. Before the pandemic, I was on a Fulbright in Lima, learning about Lima's Chinese proving community. How did you get into translation? Um, so I uh, took a translation, Spanish to English translation workshop with Natasha Wimmer, who's perhaps best known as the translator of uh, Roberto Bolaño um, in undergrad. And I hadn't, you know, even though I grew up bilingual, I hadn't really thought about translation as a thing people do as an art, um, but really fell in love with that work in that workshop and kept going after that. And then immediately after undergrad, graduating from undergrad, I went to Iowa to get this MFA in translation and fell more deeply in love and also, you know, really came to love and continue to cherish the community of translators at Iowa more broadly. It's a really, yeah, it's a, it's a great community. What is something uh, people often assume about translation? I guess the the big ones that we, you know, are talking about now are, are the idea that translation isn't creative. Um, it's just like a, a rote sort of mechanical thing or something that it, it's we're, something that eventually machines will be able to do, like, you know, with the with advances in machine translation. But I always think as long as original writing won't be able to produce in a satisfactory way by machines so too will translation have to be done by humans because a lot of the problem solving is similar between writing and and translation and that's what originally drew me to translation too I think I was always a big reader growing up and was a creative writing fiction minor in college and I, for me, translation was like always the most fun parts of writing without the more stressful parts, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, I would say, you know, there are lots of metaphors floating out there, you know, translators are creative in the same way actors are creative or, uh, you know, musicians playing a piece composed by someone else, obviously not in quite the same ways, but I think in, in ways that are similar enough that it can offer a useful framework for thinking about it. I was thinking about this while reading and, and working with the the readers for these pieces that there is this sense of dynamic that you have to create 
you, like if we're talking in musical terms, the crescendos and the diminuendos, and then you know these moments. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. that is something I would not assume about translation until like getting more into it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Sound is definitely, and I never was an actor, but sound is definitely, and reading things out loud is definitely a big part of my process. Because I think, especially with, uh, you know, I think some of the pieces that were in the the Foley, the Cuban literature supplement that I translated were they were all prose, but they were playing with sound um, in interesting ways. So reading it out loud was definitely a big part of my process in general, but also for these pieces, especially. Right. And I, I wanted to ask you, so we're looking at the Ana Lydia Vegasorova piece mm -hmm. and the Jorge Enrique Lage piece. Mm -hmm. And how did these, so how did these pieces come to you? Was it through NER? I submitted them to the call for uh, submissions from uh, for, for NER's um, Cuban literature supplement, but I didn't come across them, you know, in a vacuum. The Jorge Enrique Laje flash fiction collection that these pieces come from was put into my hands uh, when I was studying abroad in Havana by my then literature professor, now dear friend. Um, we were at the Havana book fair and she was like, she gave me this tiny book, you know, about the size of my hand. And she was like, I think you would like this. And I did really love it. I love the ways it alluded to a lot of, you know, a wide variety of other work from American pop culture to Charles Darwin to, you know, the Spanish writer Trey Loriga and with like the eerie imagery in it. So I, yeah, that's how I came across that set of pieces. And then the Ana Lidia Vegaserova, how did I come across her? I think the Cuban writer Antonio Jose Ponte guest taught or was a visiting professor when I was in college. And one day I just like went into his office hours and was like, who are the writers you, uh, you know, really like? And Ana Lidia was one of them. And I think maybe the next time I was in Havana, I made sure to pick up a bunch of her books and also really was drawn to like the sort of edging on brutality of some of her fiction, but also the humor and her, yeah, and that collection that I have since translated like most of, um, yeah, it was really fun to work on. And in short, people who are generous with their literary knowledge is often how I come to find um, work that I love and want to translate and do translate. Well, that's just such a good question. Going into someone's office and being like, what, what, what do you like to read? That's just like brilliant. <laughs> it's like acting, asking a local like where to get good food. <laughs> what, what was uh, some of your memories of translating those two pieces, some of the challenges and also some of the joys? Some of the challenges were also the joys, like figuring out how to do some of the onomatopoeia, the way it was written in Spanish. In other cases, I came up with other solutions. In the Ana Lidia Vegaserova story, there's the sound of the reloj, like clock, the metronomic sound. And in Spanish, that onomatopoeia is tun, 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 but it's spelled T-U-N. I didn't think I could keep that it that way in English because I thought the first instinct of most readers would be to read it as like tan 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 as like as in chantandra. And then I was like, but maybe I can do the closest would be T O O N, but that's obviously a word. And then I thought D O O M, but that's also obviously a word and kind of on the nose. Um, so ultimately ended up mixing those two T O O M. And there was some alliteration also in that story that I tried very hard to bring across in some way at least in that so in that way it's a challenge but it was also very fun like these are the puzzle pieces that I love um, playing with in translation 
Yeah, well, you're already speaking to this. This, and I, I think for a reader, for a listener, the linguistic rhythm is so apparent in these pieces. And how do you? You're speaking to it a little bit, but how do you approach this with that mindset of of exploration and replicating that effect? I guess, pros like concretely, my process is often I'll pull out all of my highlighters and. I'll go through and all the B sounds, I'll do one color and then all the M or N sounds, I'll do another color. And then, you know, a whole system, usually I don't keep it across pieces because I can never remember what my system is, but within the, within the, the confines of the unit I'm translating, that will help me get to sort of, sort of, I guess, visualizing the sound on the page and then reading it out loud a lot. But then when it comes to actually like translating, it's not like I'm like, okay, so there are two M's here. I have to get to bees or something. And it's much more instinctive than that. But then sometimes I will eventually when I, it's polished enough, I will print out the, my translation and also go through and look at how I've highlighted or try to highlight the different sounds that I've employed and see how they stack up against each other, just like color wise. What, what drew you to Cuban writers, which obviously you don't just focus on Cuban writers, but in this case, what drew you to these writers? Cuban literature in general, I guess I've mostly stuck with translating work from places I've spent like a chunk of time in. I did a semester abroad in Havana and had a really wonderful teacher, you know, who turned me on to writers that I loved and took us to all the great bookstores, which facilitated more discovery. That I think that is the, the, at the heart of my interest in, in Cuban literature. Cuban literary history is so rich. Both of these authors are living. Mm -hmm. And you were t talking about this in your article, Mother's Tongue, of this like translator to author relationship. What what is typical in that relationship when the author's living? Mm -hmm. I think it really depends on the writer and the translator. There's wonderful teams, duos, and there are also writers and translators that have more you know functional relationships. Sometimes even strained relationships, depending on you know. <laughs> how much the writer trusts the translator, I think, is ultimately what it comes down to. I've been lucky to have really lovely relationships with the writers I spend the most time translating. And everyone's always been very generous and understanding that, you know, translation um, is its own creation. Yeah, so I've been incredibly lucky. No writers who are like, let me see that, and then are like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this isn't close enough, right? Like that's, I haven't had that experience, but I think I don't know if it's a common experience, but that does happen um, sometimes in the translator-writer experience. Speaking on the latter, the the maybe strained relationship, I, I was just working on a play this semester that was originally written in Quebecois French, mm -hmm. but we were working with this English translation. Mm -hmm. We had people on our team who could read both and compare them, and sometimes mm -hmm. there were these gigantic differences mm -hmm. um, to the point where it changed the play. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to ask you, what leads a translator to make these changes? Mm -hmm. Sometimes those changes are done in collaboration with the writer. And I think that's cool that translation can, can make the work fresh for even its original creator and show them things they maybe didn't see or show them new possibilities for the work that they originally created. I think too, I mean, maybe this is another assumption about translation is that if you're not using the cognates, if you're not using what people call literal translations. Although my question is always like, what is literal translation? You know, like, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint what that means when you, when it comes down to it, I guess that's another assumption that 
then you must be doing something wrong. But I think a translation only doesn't work in my eyes if it doesn't have a vision behind it. And that vision may not always be immediately obvious, but good translators don't do things willy-nilly. I'm curious now about some of these changes because I think it is really illuminating often to look at the original alongside the translation. And I mean, in the gaps, you can see the work of the translator's interpretive hand. You know, seeing how their reading might have differed from yours is also really fascinating. Sometimes I love, I mean, I think it's really useful to, when there are two published translations of the same work, looking at that alongside the original and seeing why did the two translators or two or more translators make the choices they did? Why do they diverge and, and, and the differing effects they have? So, you know, some translators may make choices based on who their idea of their reader is. Like maybe one translator will think, I'm going to try to localize all the references because my the audience I'm envisioning is like a monolingual American reader who doesn't know anything about um, anything beyond the borders of the U.S., not the reader I envision generally, but I think who you're translating toward also guides the choices you make in that regard. So once again, your article, Mother's Tongue, on the Common Online, um, you focus on the hyphenation of your identity. And then I want to ask you, in what ways, if any, does this sense of hyphenation enrich, impact, enlighten your work as a translator? It definitely does. I would say, I guess maybe going back to the idea of the of your of the reader you're translating toward i think the fact that yeah i grew up bilingual means that i'm interested in translating toward a reader who maybe is multilingual and therefore is used to not understanding all the words so i think obviously i translate for everybody who picks up the work i do and spends time with it that's always you know a joy to think about and to see the different things people take away from from a piece of work that I've spent a lot of time with. That hyphenation means I'm not interested in banishing all the other quote-unquote other language from a text. And it also means I'm interested sort of unconsciously maybe in work by writers who inhabit liminal spaces. So Peruvian writers of Asian descent, Ana Lidia grew up in the Soviet Union before moving to Cuba, I think when she was 20. You know, she has heritage from 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 both sides. So I think that sense of uh, being from neither here nor there entirely, I think, is something I find really interesting. And and tracing how that percolates into into the work, I think, is also really fun for me. I really felt that idea of liminal space in the edition, the Cuban writers edition of NER, because mm-hmm. there's that sense. And I've been talking to a few of my Cuban friends about this this. You know, we're stuck into this past, we've been solidified, and now we have to figure out how to look at ourselves and how to connect with the world and to grow. So in I think that your work with these pieces are so successful in, in the liminal space. I think it also comes up with where books are published too. The third writer I translated for the, for the supplement Amal Echevarria, that novel excerpt that's in NER is from a novel that has not been published in Cuba for reasons that become obvious if you read the excerpt and think about, you know, what is and isn't fair game for fiction. That is also interesting to me. So I think maybe liminality also comes through very literally where your books exist. That's a really great point, too. Mind blown. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> um, in a similar, so this ties into this next question beautifully, because as a translator, you're, you're also working to bridge over to the liminal space. And I wrote in this question, like, you're this linguistic tie between cultures, you're a preserver of things that might get lost. Does that resonate with you as a translator yourself? Yes and no. I think I am very aware of the ways in which being published in English can open doors for better or for worse. That's just the state of publishing as it stands right now. But I'm wary of thinking of myself as a bridge. There's a wonderful panel. It was at the Conference of the American Translators Association, ALTA, in 2020. The, and the panel was called Burning the Bridge because, um, you know, the bridge is such a prevalent metaphor when talking about translation. I'm more interested in talking about it less with a general metaphor and more in terms of like my project with specific works. So, for example, one of the writers I work a lot with is uh, the Chinese Peruvian writer Julia Wong Kong. And there I'm really interested for myself, not, you know, necessarily for Julia's sake or whatever, in expanding the conversation around Asian American literature in the U.S. so that it's more continental in the American North-South continental sense. Because I think, um, as is the case with so many other things, the level of awareness of things happening outside the U.S. does not match the level of awareness of what's happening in the U.S. Um, among people who are outside the U.S. So, but I'm leery of treating literature in general as um, ethnography. Yeah. What do you try to fall into? I guess the joy of the work and on a practical level, knowing that publishing in the U.S. has very literal material benefits that can make a difference in a writer's life. Ultimately, I translate because I love the work I'm translating and getting to play with it and make it exist in English is a wonderful privilege. And the fact, you know, the fact that I get to work with writers who go on to become friends, the community aspect of it is huge for me. Okay, so now that we've reached the last question, I'm realizing that it's somewhat cheesy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I hope it's okay. I love a cheesy question. Okay, great. Give me all the dairy. Yeah, okay, here we go. What is lost in translation and what is found? Hmm. In general, I don't think I subscribe to the idea of loss and gain, black and white, or red and green. Preach. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think some, something that for me is definitely gained in translation is community with the writer, with fellow translators. So I think that's what's gained in translation. And you can even stay there. That's such a positive, beautiful note. <laughs> I don't need you to think about the negative. <laughs> Maybe what's lost is the illusion that U.S. literature is all there is. Our second and final piece today is a selection from Vulture Effect by Jorge Enrique Laje, read by Michelle Marquez. Michelle is a senior at Middlebury College. They are a literature major with a creative writing focus and a minor in education. Michelle is from Midlothian, Virginia, Caracas, Venezuela, and Pitraves, Spain. Most importantly, though, home is wherever Michelle's family is. Jorge Enrique Laje is a Cuban fiction writer, 
poet, art critic, and editor. Originally a biochemist at Universidad de la Habana, he quit the biosciences right after graduating with honors in order to pursue a career as a writer. His stories have appeared in anthologies and magazines in Cuba and abroad. He is currently the editor of the magazine El Quintero and the publishing house Caja China of the Ornelio Jorge Cardoso Literary Training Center. Jorge Enrique Laje, Selections from Vulture Effect, translated by Jennifer Shu. Nightmare. I get up early, but I can't free myself from sleep. I turn on the lights, I walk around the house, from bedroom to bathroom and from bathroom to kitchen. I eat breakfast, from kitchen to patio and from patio to living room. I turn on the TV, I read a bit, I walk through the house again, but I can't manage to wake up. I decide to go out into the street. I run into a friend and confide in him that I can't wake up. I ask for advice. He suggests I do a bit of exercise to loosen up. Then I should drink a cup of very strong coffee and listen to very loud music. I do all these things, but I don't manage to wake up. I go out once more. This time I go to the doctor. As is often the case, the doctor talks a good deal, but I do not wake up. At six in the evening, I load a revolver and blow out my brains. I jump up in bed and open my eyes, but I still haven't managed to wake up. Sleep, dreams, a very persistent thing. Saturday Night Live. Live. It's always been live. Virgilio Piñera looks at the camera, smiles and says, this is my last show. Yesterday they operated on me for the 12th time before your very eyes. A case of hypertrophy of the irony. But don't think your suffering will end here. It's very possible the operations will continue. Overdose. He's just met her in a strange city. They drink, dance, kiss, and afterward he invites her to his hotel. When he takes her clothes off, he realizes she is not a woman, but a man. Surprise. He's about to tell the man to leave right now when suddenly he's no longer a man, but a vulture sitting in front of the TV. Shock. To calm himself, he turns to a bottle that says barbiturates, but actually contains vitamins or something like that. While he dissolves in a room that now resembles a cell in a state prison, he hears the vulture say, like it's reading something on the screen, You were never promised anything. You signed no contract. Charlie Kaufman I make friends with a screenwriter. We talk on the phone for hours, him in Los Angeles and me in La Habana. I'd like to think he prefers talking with me because I give him ideas instead of asking him for his. In exchange, he sends me collections of magazines, art, shows, fashion, glamour, pages to peck at. The screenwriter says, 
Sometimes, all it takes to find it is one look at a cover. There's something there that's meant for you that only you can read. It's like a jolt. I don't know if you understand me. I'm not sure I can fully explain. Look, why don't we leave it for another day? It's already six in the morning and I just finished my mineral water. Ray Lorija. Laura calls again from Manhattan. She tells me she's been photographed for a magazine with my name on the cover. The coincidence might have excited other writers, but I know that New York is a genre, and she, calling from wherever, is an extended cut of the worst neurosis. During the conversation, I drink an entire bottle of mineral water, banging on the keys to refresh the screen. Oasis. We went to the desert to watch movies with other people's eyes. We arrived on old motorcycles, trailing eddies of sand, and beneath a screen, vast as a mirage, we put on the eyes. They had to be handled very carefully, kept clean and moist, stored in plastic baggies to prevent damage. But we were specialists. We could put on and show off even recently extracted eyes. A crowd of blind people pursued us, but none of them were able to follow us into the desert. Buried. An empty cage at the zoo. Visitors look for some living thing besides the bugs and the rocks, find nothing, and continue on. Suddenly the soil moves. From underneath emerge a hand, a head, rivulets of blood. The visitors walking by now stop to observe, astonished as a skinny man who looks like a writer or a worm-eaten corpse stands up, shakes soil from his face, and pulls up the zipper of his jean skirt. Philip K. Dick. They told him, Frankly, you write the weirdest books on earth, books in a genre that's never been written before. You can't blame the government for being curious about what kind of person would write books like that, you know? Synopsis. A little while before I left for New York, the vulture told me, when you're walking around Manhattan, think about how you're walking around an island. I left for New York and went around Manhattan looking again for Laura. People get lost on islands. I remember going into a bookstore and leaving with hands that had turned into two powdered gloves. Static. In a bookstore, I ask the manager for copies of my book. The manager looks at me from behind his soda bottle glasses, then continues hunting butterflies. He climbs onto a chair, raises the net, jumps, falls, bangs the net into the walls, knocks into the shelves, and pulls down a whole pile of books. No new arrivals, he tells me grudgingly. I'm obviously obstructing his work. Everything's paralyzed, can't you see? These insects aren't moving. I look at the butterflies. They do indeed seem to be pinned in the air. I'm almost at the door, about to leave, when I find a net, another one. But I'm not interested in staying. 
much less in sticking some insect in a net. The manager has captured two. Charles Darwin. The reader surely thinks, on the one hand with good reason, that this book is unimportant. But for someone who has never seen a landscape beyond those of England, the utterly new look of a sterile territory possesses a kind of grandeur that more abundant vegetation would completely destroy. Body Snatcher. One of Onetti's characters told me, the worst thing that can be said about these texts is that they're good. It'd be preferable to read them as hideous, like deformed insects, like little animals with too many or too few legs, eyes, horns. Which is to say that their good is what makes them bad. In this year and in this city, a scream is preferable, an incomprehensible grimace, madness of some sort. Orientation. The tourists unfold a map of the city in front of me. Please, where are we now? I look around. We're close to a hospital and a prison and the Faculty of Arts and Letters. Also nearby are a number of leafy spaces that aren't quite forests, and in them roam masturbators, addicts, crazy people, people without maps, people who got lost a long time ago. This happened a long time ago, but the tourists are still looking at me, and I have stayed quiet. Vulture Effect. Suddenly I see variations, perversions, declinations of a common effect. Movements. The police are in the street. The street reeks of unease because of the police. The vulture tells me something will come to pass here. Plural. In an interrogation room with tweezers, I arrived with my skin all bloody and encrusted. Bullet casings, glass shards, all sorts of remains. The man with the tweezers extracts the incrustations and asks where I've come from, carrying not a single truly profound idea. I tell him where we came from. He asks, and what were you doing there so far away? I say we were telling stories. Amazing stories. We told amazing stories. Scrabble. When I found myself in front of the empty board, I thought, I have seven square tiles, and on each tile is a symbol and a number, but the vultures have the letters. When the plays started getting more complicated, I thought, I can combine all the letters of the alphabet in a million different ways, but the vultures have the words. When I'd lost all innocence in the middle of the match, I thought, I've managed to put together some words, some of them truly mine, but the vultures have the language. When the grid was almost full and punctuation was an abyss, I thought, I can say I got this far and get up and leave. But nevertheless, the vultures outside have the great stories. 
And all around me, the vultures look at me as if to say, it's your turn. What are you waiting for? Skyline. Write Havana without summer color. City where we're absent. Put in some personal jargon, something unbearably pop, as if all sorts of strange fictions were about to shatter. That was Selections from Vulture Effect by Jorge Enrique Laje, read by Michelle Marquez. For more new writing from Cuba and more translations by Jennifer Shu and others, check out NER's Volume 42, Number 1, on our website at www.nereview.com. The previous episode of NER Out Loud featured Jessie Lee Kercherville reading her essay, Crash followed by a conversation with Rebecca Amen. You can find that episode and many more on NER's podcast page online or on Apple Podcasts. This episode of NER Out Loud was recorded, edited, and produced by me, Madison Middleton, a senior Feb theater and music joint major at Middlebury College. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review an association with Middlebury College. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth. All other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked what you heard, please write, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. From NER Out Loud, I'm Madison Middleton. Thank you for listening. <laughs>